as the kids are dismissed for Children's Church. If I've not met you before, my name is Chad Donahoe. Welcome. And this morning, um, we are in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. So we are in a three-week sermon series. The sermon series is Jesus as our ultimate prophet, priest, and king. Last week, we covered prophet. This week, we'll take up the theme of priest. And the following week, which will be Easter, which is what we're leading up to, will be uh, Jesus as our king. So a quick reminder, I mentioned this last week, that if... During this week of Holy Week, if you're looking for something to read, I would recommend the Gospel of Mark, because if you read the chapters of Mark in accordance with the days, it just so happens that it lines up really well to Holy Week. For instance, the Maundy Thursday reading of Mark will be what we talk about on Monday, Thursday. Good Friday is the following day in Mark, so lines up really well. So with this, if I can... So March brought us March Madness. Let's let April bring us Mark Gladness. Yeah, I I knew it was going to be bad, but I just wanted to get our blood flowing anyway. With that, let's actually get started. Let me pray for our time in the Word. So our prayer, we'll take up one of Paul's prayers and we'll make it our own. This prayer is out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Father, our prayer is that you would work in us that we would live in our, our lives in a manner worthy of your calling, that you would do good works by faith, that we would do that through your power of your spirit, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. So we give you thanks for this morning. I pray that you would strengthen, encourage, convict us according to your word so that we would truly live lives that are worthy of our calling. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, we'll go 14 through 16. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this is the Sunday before Easter, known as Palm Sunday. It is this Sunday that we reflect back to that moment when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, referred to as his triumphal entry. So the crowds lined the streets in that day. They lined it with cloaks and palm branches, cloaks that would symbolize their submission to this one whom they hoped would be their king. And then the palm branches symbolized victory. And they cheered. They cheered, Hosanna, which means save us. Or, or, oh, save. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So great crowds gathered around, cheering. 
But let's take a step back and ask the question, why did Jesus cause such a stir, such a frenzy in his day? Well, it's what he said. It's when he came on the scene and he said, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's going to get people's attention. It's when he taught, when he would say, you have heard it said, and then he would go on to quote the scribes and Pharisees in their mishandling of the Old Testament. And then Jesus would go on to say, but I say to you, claiming all authority, claiming to be the voice of God, claiming to be the son of God. It's what he said. But also, it's what he did. His miracles, his feeding of 5,000, right? Healing people. That's going to turn people's heads and get people's attention, cause a stir. But what he said and what he did pointed to something deeper, his identity. Who is he? Was the question that was being asked. Who is this man? Jesus asked his disciples, if you recall, that very question. Who do the crowd say that I am? And if you recall, they're like, well, Jesus, this is paraphrased a little bit, you know, Jesus, people have been talking, right? And what were they saying? They said, people are saying you're Elijah or you're Jeremiah. You're one of the prophets. So that may sound like an odd answer to us, unless we understand what the people of that day were looking for and longing for. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the passage that I preached from last week, Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15, that said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. They were waiting for this, pro- this prophet and all that Jesus was teaching and his miracles. He fit the description of this one who is to come. But the people of Jesus' day also were looking for a coming king. Again, they knew the scriptures. 2 Samuel chapter 6, this covenant that God established with King David, that one would come from him, from the line of David, that would have an eternal throne. And they knew the scriptures of Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your kingdom is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. They were waiting. They were longing for this fulfillment. And so when Jesus turned and asked his disciples the same question, who do you say that I am? Remember, it was Peter. Peter's response You are the Christ. As I mentioned last week, that's not a last name. It's not Jesus Christ as last name. Christ was a title. Christ pointed back to the Old Testament. It pointed back to the offices, or you could say the roles of the Old Testament, to prophet, priest, and king. These were the offices that were ordained by God and anointed by the Holy Spirit for the salvation of God's people. And so with what Jesus said and did, yes, there was a frenzy. People were asking, is he the one? Is he the ultimate prophet? Is he the one? Has our king finally arrived? And the answer is yes. Jesus would fulfill the role of the prophet perfectly. 
in revealing God to us and the way of salvation. And Jesus would go on to fulfill the role of the king. But I can't talk about that now. That's next week. But before Jesus is exalted as king, there was another office that was anointed by the Holy Spirit, ordained by God for Jesus to fulfill. It was the role of the priest. And this would require in Jesus' earthly life not exaltation, but humiliation and suffering. Jesus revealed to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer, be killed on the third day, be raised. Of course, Peter didn't get it, right? Rebukes Jesus in that moment. Peter did not like that answer. The disciples at that time didn't get it. But the question for us this morning is, do we get it? Do we get the significance of what it means that Jesus is our perfect prophet, priest, and king? This morning, the significance that Jesus is our only true priest. I mentioned this quote last week. The more you understand the Old Testament, the closer you come to the heart of Jesus in his understanding of his own identity and mission. So critical to understanding Jesus' heart, his identity, his mission, is to understand these offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. And specifically this morning, for us to understand these roles of the priest, how Jesus fulfilled it, and then what it means for us. So I'm going to focus on two main roles this morning. One, the, the, the roles of the priest. One would be making atonement. And I will spend the majority of time on that. And then the other one I'll talk about is, at the very end, making intercession. So first, excuse me, making atonement. What does atonement mean? When we think of atonement, we can think of dealing with sin. The question is, how do sinners deal with their sin before a perfect, holy God, how do they make up for their sin? And when I say sin, I'm referring to any thought, word, or deed that does not conform to the heart of God, to the will of God, the word of God. So how do sinners make themselves right before God? The Bible's answer is that sinners cannot do this on their own. So what did God establish? The moment that sin was introduced into the world. The sacrificial system began in this way. If we can look back to the Garden of Eden. Now, if we think of the Garden of Eden, think about this perfect sanctuary, or maybe you could say temple, um, with Adam as the priest over this temple. God's relationship with Adam and Eve, everything was perfect. God was present with them. And then they sinned against God. After sinning, they recognized that they were naked and they hid from God due to their guilt and shame. And then Genesis 3.21 tells us, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So many pastors and theologians, myself included, look at this 
and see in this the first sacrifice for sin. Adam and Eve's sin was so grave, so severe, that it took the death of another, in this case an animal, to cover their sin, their guilt, and their shame. So after Adam and Eve sinned and were exiled out of the Garden of Eden, at that point we begin to see the establishment of altars. First we have in Genesis chapter 8, Noah, after the flood, Noah builds an altar to the Lord. And this is an altar of thanksgiving and atonement where an animal is offered and burnt. And it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord, meaning that, offer, that, that offering has been accepted. And then we see later in the call of Abraham's life, and this is Genesis 12, after the call to Abraham's life and God's promise that he will bless him with descendants, the promised land, that they will be a blessing, Abraham offers to the Lord a sacrifice on an altar. And then what we find as this, as this promise of, of God's people, uh, the descendants continue to grow in number, what we find is that um, what's really needed is a sanctuary for God's people to be able to gather and worship and offer sacrifices. So the altars were then placed in the tabernacle. Think portable sanctuary when God's people were on the move throughout the Old Testament and then later in the temple. So I want us just to fast forward now to the book of Exodus. And here's why. The order of the content of the book of Exodus is really important. God opens, or Exodus opens, with God's people in Egypt under oppression. Now, the scriptures tell us they have been fruitful and multiplied. So we see this promise throughout the scripture, especially to Abraham, coming to fruition. But they're in slavery and oppression under Egypt. And so what does God do? God raises up Moses and he establishes covenant with Moses. And when we say covenant, when I say covenant, you say, be your God, and you will be my people. God's promise that he would secure them as, his God, as their God, that they would be his people. God would secure them. So he sends Moses to get them out. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. Ten plagues. Following the ten plagues, uh, God leads them with Moses through the Red Sea. Okay, towards the promised land, and then they stop at Mount Sinai. Hope you know I'm going somewhere with this, and we're getting there right now. It was at Mount Sinai that God gives his people the Ten Commandments. So, they will inevitably, as sinners, break these Ten Commandments, right? So the question is, how can a sinful people enter into the presence of a holy God? That's the question. And the answer, I would sum it up in one word, and I'll give you a hint. It begins with an A and ends in atonement. Atonement. After God gives the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20, pretty much the rest of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, the following book, is devoted to this question of atonement and especially the establishment 
of the tabernacle, later the temple, the establishment of priests to make atonement. So with that many chapters devoted to atonement, we know this is very important to the heart of God. So the priests were ordained, anointed for the task of offering atonement. What was required of these priests? I'll summarize it this morning with three words. Holiness, teaching, and sacrifice. So, by the way, as I talk about priests, this is not just an interesting history lesson. Right? I'm just going to show my hand ahead of time. The scriptures talk about us because of the work of Christ as his priests, priesthood of believers. So what we talk about, what I talk about with the priests, we should think about with our own lives. So first, this reality of holiness, that the priests were set apart. Literally, in the Old Testament, priests were set apart with oil. That symbolized their being set apart and, and holiness and to empower, to carry out the role that God has called them to. And they were called to live in holiness between God and his people. They had special garments even that set them apart. Even their garments were called holy garments. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 4, before they even put the garments on, they had to be cleansed with water. I think about this process. Cleansed with water, showing their need for purification. And then there's particular instruction about their garments and how the garments are to clothe their nakedness. And, and this is an echo back to Adam and Eve, how God needed to clothe them because of their sin. And we have uh, their garments are said to be according to Exodus 28, verse 2, and then later in verse 40, for the glory and for beauty. And here's what uh, a very helpful uh, Richard Belcher, commentator, uh, prophet, priest, and king, the roles of Christ in the Bible and our role today, very helpful book for me during this, uh, for this series. Here's what he said about the garments. The garments of the priest allow them to reflect the honor and glory of God to the people as they represent his presence. So these garments even had these precious stones woven into the garment. And on these stones were the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that as the priest was ministering before the Lord, he was representing the people of God. So the priests were to be holy. The priests also had the role of teaching. They were to teach the law to God's people, and specifically in reference to the sacrificial system. So we can think of the role of prophets and priests. Both of them at times proclaimed the word of the Lord, but slightly different. So the prophets were called, and at times God gave them, spoke directly to them, thus says the, and they would say, thus says the Lord, and, and give instruction regarding the covenant life under the Lord. Whereas the priests, a little bit more narrow, they were to teach the things of the law regarding the sacrificial system, how God's people can be clean. And so we see this in Leviticus chapter 10. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. But then this in Malachi chapter 2 verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge 
and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. And that was in context of the Lord's anger at the priests for not giving proper instruction for their people to be holy and clean before him. The importance for the priest of guarding knowledge and teaching accurately. And then the sacrifices. Specific instruction was given by God to the priests for the sacrifices, and we see this in Leviticus 8 and on. So the point is, the priests needed their own sacrifice for sin before they could ever offer sacrifice, sacrifices for others. And so I want you to hear, I'm going I'm to quickly talk through what the priest had to go through to offer sacrifices for themselves, just to get a sense of the seriousness of this. So the first one was a sin offering. The priest would place their hands on a bull as it was slaughtered. Okay, And then this animal that was slaughtered in front of them, symbolic. They were identifying with this animal's death. This animal slaughtered in their place. The animal's blood rather than theirs. We can refer to this as substitutionary atonement. Right? Animal slaughter, or, or, or the animal in place of the person. The, blood's bull, or, or the bull's blood covered their sins, and then some of the blood would be put on the altar to set the altar apart in purification. Next, there was a burn offering of a ram as it was slaughtered and offered to the Lord to produce an aroma that would be pleasing to the Lord. And yes, the New, talk, the New Testament does talk about Christians having the aroma of Christ. And then another ram was sacrificed, but the blood of this ram would be put on their right earlobe, their right thumb, and their right big toe. Symbolic of consecrating, consecrating their whole lives to the Lord. The priests were to listen to God and obey him. They were to do work to serve the Lord, the thumb, and to walk in his ways, the right toe. And again, the priests needed their own sacrifice for sins before they could offer sacrifices for others. But then Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 gives instruction regarding all the various sacrifices that the priests were to offer on behalf of the people. Now, I'm not going to walk through Leviticus 1 through 7, okay? But I do want us to think about this. I want us to think about how serious sin is to God. With every one of these sacrifices, the people bringing the sacrifice would lay their hands on the head of the animal. And the animal was then killed in front of them. The animal exchanged for them. Can you imagine how graphic that would have been? How serious the sin really is to God that it required blood. We know this from Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood... And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
God does not take sin lightly, does he? And nor should we. Let's briefly talk about the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. This is a special day, Leviticus 16. This is the one day during the year that the high priest would enter into the most holy place. So if this is the tabernacle or the temple, just in your minds, you're in the holy place. Up here, a curtain would be uh, between you and the most holy place. This would represent the most holy place. Only once a year, the high priest could enter into this place to make a sacrifice. He was the mediator between God and the people. And I'm going to leave out some details of this day, but just to get to the heart of it. He would have two goats. One goat would be a sin offering, sacrificed for the sin of the people. The other goat, the high priest, would lay his hands on that goat, and he would confess all the sins of God's people. And then that goat would be set free to run out into the wilderness. Again, think about the visual of this. One goat sacrificed for sin, but what happens to those sins? The other goat, all those sins are removed, they're gone. The goat takes off, they're atoned for. And then Leviticus says at the end of that chapter 16, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Now, let's talk about Jesus. And actually, we've been talking about Jesus the whole time, haven't we? Not just naming him, we just haven't named him yet. Let's talk more specifically, Jesus as our true high priest. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is all about Jesus as superior. And so much of this book is about how Jesus is superior to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it has much to say about Jesus as our high priest. Our verse this morning, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, meaning Jesus ascended from the grave, um, ascended to the right hand of the Father. So in that sense, passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let's talk about the reality of what it means that Jesus was sinless, how significant that is. He was tempted toward sin, but never fell into it. So what does that do for us? Jesus can sympathize with us in our weakness, the scripture tells us. Fully God, but also fully man. And as fully man, tempted. So he gets it. Hebrews 2.17 refers to him as a merciful and faithful high priest. Faithful, never sin, merciful. Because he gets it, he gets the temptation. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, Hebrews 2.17 says, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What an amazing promise for us. And then this, the fact that he was sinless makes him the perfect sacrifice. 
I mentioned that one of, one of the requirements of the, of the priests was holiness. They were set apart in holiness. Think about Jesus. In his virgin birth, he was set apart, fully God, fully man. But the virgin birth, as again, the author of this book puts it, the virgin birth safeguards both the deity and the humanity of Christ. See, we all inherited the sin from Adam and Eve, but not Jesus because of the virgin birth. So Jesus is set apart and then anointed, not by oil, but by the Holy Spirit. And his whole life was perfectly dedicated to God. If we think about, again, the priests, the blood on the, uh, on the earlobe, on the thumb, on the big toe, Jesus perfectly listened and obeyed God, perfectly accomplished the work that he was sent to do, perfectly walked in the ways of God, and he walked all the way to the cross. So what does it mean that Jesus is our perfect sacrifice for sin? I think it can be helpful. Theologians talk about the active and passive obedience of Christ. Again, with active obedience, with the Old Testament, we can think in terms of these sacrifices, the animals, they were to be pure, blameless, spotless, without any blemish. That was Jesus in his life. His active obedience, he perfectly obeyed God in everything. Passive obedience, meaning he was willing to suffer and die for his people as the atoning sacrifice. Or you could say as the substitutionary atonement, substituting himself in the place of sinners. So what happened at the cross? What did the cross accomplish? A lot of things could be said here. I'll just uh, name four aspects of atonement. One would be the word expiation. Jesus bore our sins cleansed. He, he took them away. Again, think about the day of atonement. Right? Jesus is our day of atonement. One goat, sin, the sin placed on that goat, but the other one, sins announced, confessed, that, that, that goat goes, removed. That's what Jesus did on the cross. Completely removed our past, present, future sin. Propitiation, it's all about the anger and wrath of God. The anger and wrath of God for sin was poured out on Jesus at the cross. Reconciliation, this idea that God has turned enemies into friends. And this morning as we enter the Lord's, for the Lord's Supper, as we come to this table, this is just a foretaste of an eternal fellowship with God and with one another. Because through reconciliation, through the cross, God made his enemies his friends. And finally, redemption. We have been bought back with the precious blood of Christ, which means we belong to God. We do not belong to this world. We've been adopted, his sons and daughters. See, the problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system is that it had to be repeated over and over. But Hebrews chapter 9, 14 tells us, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works 
to serve the living God. Okay, if you caught that last part, from dead works to serve the living God. And so let's just talk briefly about what it means that we are the priesthood of God. We are his priests. We've been set apart and anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he promised that he would send one. He did not promise that he would send the lukewarm spirit, right? He promised that he would send the Holy Spirit, the spirit who is perfect and works out in our lives holiness, not the lukewarm spirit. So a question for us this morning is I was thinking about different markers. How do we assess our spiritual growth? One would be this. Do you confess your sins? What's that practice like in your life? We do it on Sunday mornings. We do this here. How about throughout the work or throughout the week? Are you sensitive to the conviction of sin in your life? Do you find that you confess sins daily basis? Because if we're confessing our sins, that means that we're seeking to live a life that's holy. And that means that we're acknowledging the times that we are sinning, sensitive to the Spirit. And that means that we're calling upon God, thanking Him for His grace, but calling on Him to strengthen us in our lives, in our faith. Do you confess your sins? I think again about this, uh, the earlobes, the thumbs, and the toes. In our minds, uh, if we just... We have this that the blood has been shed and it, it's on our earlobes, it's on our thumbs, and it's on our toes. How are we listening to God in obedience? Are we seeking to work in a way that is glorifying to him in this life? Are we walking according to his path, his scriptures? First Peter 2 calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I've shared this before, but here's the picture I have in my mind. Everywhere we go as priests, we are people who are called to stand in the middle. We stand in the middle. In my mind, I think I'm a priest in this place. Everywhere I go, I'm a priest in this place. I'm standing in the middle. I stand between the, the Garden of Eden, perfection, and the new heavens, new earth, where it'll be perfect and glorious, but right now it's a fallen world. I stand here in holiness, stand in the middle. As priests, we stand before a holy God and, yes, sinful people and called to proclaim his excellencies. Do we take our calling as priests seriously? Do we take our sin seriously? So after the cross... I know you know this, but I'll just reinforce it. Jesus did not go into retirement. He's not just like playing golf, right? And I have, I, have nothing, I have nothing against golf. I love golf. If you invite me to play golf and pay for it, I will play. Um, but he, uh, he's still working. He's making intercession. And I'll be brief with this. 
I want to weave a quick theme together when we think about this Jesus at the right hand of the Father making intercession, okay? Um, Think about the Garden of Eden. Adam was called in Genesis 2.15 to work and to keep. And this idea of work, that Hebrew, could be translated to serve. Okay, this idea of keep would be to guard, to protect. So Adam was to serve the Lord and he was to protect the garden from evil. The same word, work and keep, is used later of the Levites and their duties to serve the Lord and to guard the temple, right? Guard the sacrificial system, guard the people. And then we have Jesus, who as our perfect high priest, his role to guard and to keep, right? His, uh, his work to serve. He himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And to guard. While Jesus was on the earth, he guarded his disciples often through prayer. And we have a glimpse of this in John 17. Listen to his words in his high priestly prayer. This is right before his crucifixion. I'm just going to read parts of it. It says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, his disciples. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. I have guarded them. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus was praying in that moment for his current disciples, and John 17 says, for his future disciples. That would be us. And how about now? What is Jesus doing right now at the right hand of the Father? I love these passages. Hebrews 7, 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Intercession meaning defending them, meaning praying for them. Romans 8, 31 through 35. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then it goes on, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is nothing or nobody because he's interceding for us. And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, that word, advocate, we have support with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you catch that, the point is that when we sin, we have one that's advocating on our behalf, and that one is the propitiation. The wrath was already poured out on him. That means when we are in sin, we may grieve the Holy Spirit, but it is not God yelling at us. It is Jesus praying for us. 
And yes, we do have to take seriously the fact that we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And what that should cause us to do is look at the faithfulness of Christ, what he has done for us. So, what does Jesus as our priest offer us? Assurance of God's love. Peace of conscience. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Increase of grace in our lives. And perseverance till the very end of our lives. Or until he returns, if that comes first. And in light of this glorious truth, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So as we come to the table this morning, there's a lot of things we could reflect on here, but how about this? The priest wore special garments, remember? And in these garments, woven into them were stones, and on these stones were the names of God's people as 12 tribes. And that was for the priest to be able to bring these tribes, represent them before the Lord. Now think about Jesus with his garments. At the cross, he was stripped of his garments. He was mocked. He was whipped. He was crucified. And why? Because he had the names of his people on his heart, on his mind and was faithful to the end. I want to read as we come to the table. I want us to focus our attention on this table. I want to read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. You don't even have to turn there. You can just listen. Just listen. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, gave this to his disciples. Said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what are we proclaiming? 
that he is our only and true and faithful high priest who sacrificed himself for us. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you meet us at this table in such a way that strengthens us in our faith. Grow us in the knowledge of your glorious grace. Give us a hope that will sustain us. So we pray that you take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that you are with us. May you be glorified at this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.